Jim Murray, a columnist with the Los Angeles Times, wrote an article in 1985 entitled, Baseball is America's Grand Old Game and It Will Never Change. Chicago baseball fans, whether you're a White Sox, anybody, any White Sox, or a Cubby, Cubbies, might feel that the phrase, it will never change, applies to their hopes for wins, but that's because you all have wounded psyches and you need some serious help, right? As best I can tell, after reading the article, he meant the phrase, it will never change, in two ways. Baseball will always be America's game. Football, soccer, basketball won't displace it from our hearts. And baseball, the game itself, will never change. And in one sense, in the 120 or so year history of baseball, it's been resilient. You know, we still watch nine guys take the field. We still hear the crack of that ball off the bat. We still hold hot dog in hand while singing, take me out to the ball game, leaving no question about which ball game we're referring to. However, in another sense, Murray's article, Blinded by Nostalgia, doesn't face the brutal reality that baseball is a game that's changing. And that was happening prior to him ever writing that article nearly 30 years ago. For instance... After Roger Maris broke Babe Ruth's home run record in 1961, baseball responded to the growing success of hitters by increasing the strike zone, giving an advantage to pitchers. Batters lost power through the 1960s, making 1968 what they called the year of the pitcher. Only one batter that year had a batting average over 300. Major League Baseball had to self-correct, had to change again, so they lowered the pitching mound. In the years prior to 1968, the pitching mound was higher, giving the pitcher the major advantage. He was literally throwing down at batters. But in 1969, they brought the mound down, introducing a level playing field. Change upon change, things have accelerated since then. Increasingly high contracts led to mathematicians bringing their calculators into the dugout to figure out what low-cost players had the greatest probability of future wins. Costly public mistakes and embarrassing calls by umpires led baseball into using instant replay to manage the human element of the game. There's even, in recent years, been a pseudo-position added to baseball. As left-hand batters are tearing up defenses, a strategy called the shift now moves the shortstop or the second baseman into shallow right field in order to cover the spot where lefties tend to hit. And so if you're a left-handed batter, you better hit harder to another spot, or you better learn how to bunt, or you better become ambidextrous, for goodness sakes, because otherwise your days in baseball are over. How has baseball will never change become a game of such significant changes? Well, the good old days of baseball are changing as a result of tracking a trend, noticing a pattern, and then responding to it. That, in a nutshell, and illustrated by the concrete example of baseball, is what our summer series, Trending Now, Christ and Culture, is all about. In this series, we're seeking to isolate cultural habits, patterns, and trends in order to see them for what they are and respond appropriately to them. And if we do this task well as Christians, we'll have an opportunity to shape our culture. 
So the big question is this. How do we get perspective on the direction of our culture as Christians, and then how do we engage it? For nine weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the major cultural trends that we face as Christians living in the 21st century in America. We're going to explore technology, humanitarian efforts, family, marriage, generosity, church dropouts, persecution, life itself, and today, celebrity culture. Now, we've invited a whole host of speakers to help us do this this summer. They come from a wide variety of backgrounds, and they're from all over the place. And they're going to be helping us to navigate this fascinating territory, helping us to understand and evaluate these trends, and then actually put together our responses to them. Now, hopefully that orients you to the big picture stuff of the series. I want to make one brief comment about the subtitle, Christ and Culture. You know, I'm guessing it'll come as a surprise to many of us to learn that the interaction of Christians and culture has been a major debate in the history of the church. You know, for thousands of years, we've been working to understand how this relationship between Christians and culture should function. And helpfully for us, living when we do, we have the opportunity to canvas the entire conversation to glean the best insights. So there have been basically three positions on how to think about Christians in culture. There have been a bunch of variations that have arisen in these, but these three basic positions still hold firm. The first one sees the Christian against culture, staunchly opposing anything that doesn't arise from within the context of the church. Christians against culture. A second position endorses everything the culture does, creates, and is about functionally making a Jesus stamp on anything cultural. This is the Christian for culture. we got Christians against, Christians for culture. And then finally, the third position sees that Jesus, as Lord of absolutely everything, made a world that's good but has also fallen, which means that the Christian's interaction with culture is a mixed bag, complete with good and bad elements, and that should temper our expectations for major cultural change. That's a mixed position. Now, typically, a person takes one position at the exclusion of the other two. That makes good sense. But I think that that lacks something very significant. Each one of these positions is appropriate depending on the particular scenario. We don't need a one-size-fits-all approach to culture. What we need is wisdom in walking with God so that as we engage all of these different things over the course of the summer, our approach is going to be to embrace a for, against, or mixed position as the needs arise. Now, I recognize full well that all of what I've just said for about the last two minutes has been a bit theoretical. Every single one of us takes a position on one of these things, whether you know it or not. And so you'll see some of this stuff get fleshed out over the course of the series. And you'll see it fleshed out, especially here today, as we think about our topic, which is popular culture at its essence, celebrity culture. So make your way in your Bible to Acts 14 if you brought one with you. And to the notes section of your weekly welcome where you'll notice the title for this message. I've called it Celebrification. A six-syllable fun word to say. We're all going to say it together. Ready? Celebrification. It feels good coming off the tongue, doesn't it? I didn't make that word up. That is a legit word that describes the moment when a profession, a field, or a discipline has risen in prominence so as to have well-known people or well-known products. 
When that happens, that company or whatever it is, is celebrified. They've gone through celebrification. Now, believe it or not, an entire culture, an entire society can experience this phenomenon. American culture as a whole has been celebrified. In our obsession with celebrity lives, we've devoted more and more attention to the smallest details and done so in an effort to find our greatest meaning in life. We've undergone celebrification, and the results are interesting, to say the least. That's where we're going to begin, with several aspects of a culture that's been celebrified, and then we're going to move to consider two actions that we can take to shape our culture obsessed with celebrity. So if you're taking notes, my first point is a sketch of celebrity culture. A sketch of celebrity culture. You know, we need to know in some detail what we're talking about, and surprisingly, our profile of celebrity culture is going to come from our passage in Acts 14. So here's a quick setup. The Apostle Paul and his ministry teammate Barnabas have recently left on their first of three trips recorded in the book of Acts to proclaim the gospel all over the place in the Mediterranean world to different cities. The good news about Jesus is coming forth from their lips. They visited several cities before they come to Lystra, which is in present-day Turkey. Now, some incredible events happen as recorded in this story, but our main interest for right now is in the response of the people of Lystra to a healing that takes place. So follow along, Acts 14, verses 8 through 13. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. All right, in verses 11 through 13, and a few more verses at the end of the chapter that we're going to look at in a moment, we find four aspects of celebrity culture. Now, some of you might already be objecting inside because you feel like I'm forcing celebrity culture onto the text of Acts 14. You say to yourself, how different could it possibly be first century life and 21st century life? Whatever Acts 14 is talking about, it couldn't possibly be talking about celebrity culture. Jameson, you're working too hard on this. And I'd say, well, I beg to differ with that little objector inside of you. You know, the common point between Acts 14 and Bieber fever is people worship. And the following observations, I think, will make this pretty clear. So here's the first observation. Celebrity culture presents transcendence. The phrase, the gods have come down to us in human form, is about access to ultimate meaning and significance. Embodied before them in the persons of Paul and Barnabas is a connection to something much greater than themselves. Being in their presence or simply being associated with them transcends life as usual. Now this seems to me to be the exact same goal as the celebrity retweet. You know, a person on Twitter writes himself a birthday message. 
which is as lame as it gets, by the way, or somebody else writes this person a birthday message and they take the opportunity to pitch this message to a celebrity that they want to retweet them so that they can be associated with the celebrity. Oh, if I could just have that person put my name out there attached to theirs. Our lives feel more meaningful when they're connected to somebody who has greater significance than us. You know, we think we're sharing in their significance. It's transcendence. I want ultimate meaning. Second, celebrity culture promises power. You know, something very important struck me about the people of Lystra as I was reading this story. In their fervor about Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they were in the presence of gods, they felt empowered to rename them. Did you notice that? Look at verse 12. Barnabas they called, they renamed him Zeus, and Paul they called, they renamed him Hermes because he was the chief speaker. This is a self-serving power play on the part of the people of Lystra. And in order to understand what I mean by that, let me just paint a little bit of the background for you. Before Paul and Barnabas showed up in Lystra, there was a guy named Ovid. He was a Roman poet, and he wrote a story about the people of Lystra. He says in their long history, there was a point where Zeus and Hermes showed up in their city. Their gods showed up in their city, but they didn't know that it was them. That's because Zeus and Hermes took on a disguise. They showed up as travelers looking for a hospitable city, hoping that their people, these people that worshipped them, would be hospitable toward them. And instead, the people of Lystra were unkind. And Zeus and Hermes got honked off, and they started to punish them for their unkindness. Well, now, several years later, this guy shows up, and he's healing people. He's talking in a slick way. It seems like Zeus and Hermes are back. And so the people are not going to waste the opportunity to relive a moment from their history. This time, they're not going to screw it up. And so they take advantage of the moment, empowered by this cult of personality, this cult of celebrity, this God worship, idolatry. They rename them. They call them Zeus and Hermes, and they prepare to worship them. Celebrity culture lures us in to the point where we actually think that we have some kind of power. It's addictive. It produces a greater and greater control in us of the image of our favorite people. You can see this on display when a band, a a music band, changes their sound. You know, fans want a certain kind of sound. And rather than giving their band the privilege of being artistic and innovative and doing new things, they want to control and have power over them. So they boycott, I'm not going to spend money on this. Or they complain like crazy until the the sound is changed back. And oftentimes it is because celebrity culture promises us power. In a slightly different way, celebrity culture promises us power by holding out the hope that we too could become famous. In just one moment, like winning the lottery, we could make one viral YouTube video and then that would make it big. We view celebrity culture like an escape hatch from the mundane lives that we're living, hoping that one day we can make it big, that we could have real power. Third, celebrity culture promotes idolatry. We've already seen in verse 12 that they think these guys were gods. But now look at verse 13. Luke writes, the priest of Zeus 
whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Skip down to verse 18. Paul speaks to the people, dissuading them from worshiping him. And Luke says, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. See, the language of worship, and here Luke is describing a very normal ancient practice of sacrifice. The language of worship is carried over into our devotion and obsession with celebrities. We often speak of idolizing a star. Reflecting on the influence of Oprah, this author wrote several years ago to her audience of more than 22 million, mostly female viewers, Oprah has become a postmodern priestess an icon of church-free spirituality. Very interesting. One woman said this, those of us who are fans, we use these celebrity lives in ways that transform our own. That's transcendence talk. I sometimes think that these are our gods and goddesses. These are our icons, and their stories become kind of parables for how to lead our lives. Some have called this celebrity worship syndrome, which is an obsessive addictive disorder in which a person becomes overly involved in the details of a celebrity's personal life. Do you remember when Michael Jackson died? Celebrity worship syndrome. When you got his face on your t-shirt and you listen to hours and hours and hours and hours of his music, and you give money to his organizations, and you collect all sorts of memorabilia, and his death puts you into a steep depression for days, that's worship-like. Somebody coming from another culture would think that you've chosen to worship a very strange God indeed. Here's one final observation. Celebrity culture pitches immortality. You know, since it presents transcendence and promises power and promotes idolatry, celebrity culture is subtly saying that you'll live forever. But if there's one thing that celebrity culture is, it's fickle. It might pitch immortality, but it will quickly kill you. Look at verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. One minute they're preparing to offer sacrifices in worship to him, and the next minute they're preparing their arms to throw stones at him. So fickle. You know, celebrities from a generation ago are no longer famous. Celebrities from 10 years ago, in some cases, are no longer famous. Fame fades quickly due to a fickle celebrity culture that is only interested in the most recent juicy celebrity gossip. Celebrity culture presents transcendence, promises power, promotes idolatry, and pitches immortality. Now, you might be tempted to see all of these things as completely and totally negative, but I don't think that that's super helpful. There are, no doubt, a bunch of really significant negatives about this part of our culture. You know, for instance, it's like self-centeredness on steroids. It also highlights the fact that most of us don't like our day in and day out lives and so we go looking for joy in someone else's life. And it also makes plain the fact that most of us are easily duped into thinking that there really is a life out there to be lived that's only filled with high points, money and parties and fame and without significant problems, which is a total hoax. But even amongst these negative considerations, which are really important, I think it's helpful to note two positive aspects of celebrity culture. 
Celebrity culture reminds us of the fact that at bottom, all of us are worshipers. Think about that. No matter how hard we've tried as a culture and a society to put God someplace way out there, out of sight and out of mind, we cannot get rid of our gods. We can't get rid of him so easily. We're made to worship, and we're all worshiping someone or something. And then second, and maybe most importantly, celebrity culture reminds us that we're all hardwired for significance. Each one of us longs deeply for security and acceptance and importance and satisfaction and significance, which means that we're all restless in the song that we heard just a little bit ago until we find our rest in God. God made us to be significant, but it doesn't happen by getting more and more people to like us or to look at us. It only happens when we rightly esteem each other and ourselves, and we find our deepest needs, our deepest longings met by God himself. We live in a culture that is increasingly obsessed with becoming celebrities and worshiping celebrities. That's the trend. Now, how do we engage our culture at this point? Now, Paul and Barnabas model two actions for us. If you're taking notes, here's my second point. Action number one, stand in celebrity culture. We need to stand in celebrity culture. In his book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell tells a very sad but very interesting story. Kitty Genovese lived in New York City in the 1960s, and it was here that she was attacked and stabbed to death one night while walking home. The offender actually approached Kitty on three different occasions over the course of 30 minutes, and each time he attacked her again and again and again. Now, after the incident, police in the neighborhood were curious why no one, not a single person, called the police during this brutal attack. And this was even more shocking when, after they did a bunch of interviews, they learned that 38 people in a nearby apartment building observed out their windows or heard out their windows this awful thing taking place. And what researchers discovered is that no one did anything about it because they all assumed someone else was going to do something about it. Catch that. No one did anything about it because they all assumed someone else was going to do something about it. Well, this finding has been confirmed through a whole bunch of other studies. They'll take somebody and they'll kind of stage a seizure in another room. If a group of people is in a room, no one will do anything. They defer, they wait, they look at each other, and no one does anything. But if that seizure victim is, going, is having the seizure in the other room and one person by himself is in a room, he will do something every time. Smoke billowing out from underneath a door, same scenario. If you're with a group, you won't do anything, but if you're by yourself, you'll act. We're all most likely not going to do anything because we all assume that someone else will take responsibility to do something. That is our basic stance as most of us with respect to our culture at large. We feel like we can't do anything. You know, after sketching out celebrity culture like I just did, I'm stuck with two emotions. I feel like it's so massive a thing, so big an issue that I couldn't possibly do anything. And I think somebody else must be better poised. Someone has more influence than me to do something, which is what most of us are thinking, and so nothing happens. But what I want to suggest is that we as Christians have a responsibility to serve as a sort of conscience for our culture. 
seeking to draw attention to what's going on in order to raise questions about it. Sitting idly by is not an option. We need to be salt and light in our culture by picking up the phone or going to help the seizure victim or calling somebody about the smoke billowing out from underneath the door. We need to get in the middle of the situation in order to really feel it and then to understand it and do something as a result. We need to stand in the midst of celebrity culture, which is exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas doing. Take a look again at the text. Look at their response to celebrity worship in verse 14 in the first part of verse 15. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, when they learned what was going on, that these people were about to worship them, they shouted, excuse me, they heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? You know, but Paul and Barnabas didn't dismiss the people of Lystra as fools. They didn't make fun of their ineptitude. They certainly didn't receive their worship and affirm their idolatry. Instead, they grieved over their misguided attempts for significance, and they confronted the main issues. Luke says that Paul and Barnabas figured out what was going on, and they tore their clothes. This physical act represented how emotionally distraught they were at the actions of these people. They were grieving both because God wasn't getting the worship that he alone deserves and because it underscored the degree to which these folks were lost in their search for ultimate meaning. Now what effect does our celebrity culture have on you? This is a major component of American culture, and I'm guessing that because all of us swim in it, we've never allowed ourselves to grieve over it because we haven't really felt it, seen it for what it really is. It's idolatry, or we don't believe that it actually affects us or those celebrities. You know, we hear the names Jay-Z and Beyonce and Kim Kardashian and Kanye West more often in a week than we hear the names of people that we actually know. You know, we're more interested in the development of the royal child than we are about kids around us in our own neighborhoods. Living vicariously through these people, hoping that it amounts to some lasting joy in our lives, should grieve us. And it should make us emotionally distraught. And when we've actually grieved over it, we might be moved to engage the insanity, to shout, as we're told Paul and Barnabas did, to get the attention of this dazed and confused mass, and then to ask them this wonderful question, why are you doing this? I have a friend who had a why are we doing this moment just a couple weeks ago. He and his daughter went to a local restaurant where they were hosting a Frozen event, where they were going to have Anna and Elsa there hanging out with kids and whatever at this restaurant. Okay, so he goes to this thing, and he said it was very clear that the restaurant was completely underprepared for all of the people who were going to show up. He said it wasn't like just a couple hundred people. It was maybe thousands of people there to see Anna and Elsa. And the plan was for them just to walk around the restaurant while all of these people were eating and you might be able to catch a picture with them or whatever. So all of these kids are in this super-duper long line waiting for hours in these costumes, hoping for a picture or a hug or a minute to meet them, whatever. Parents are also in line, getting more and more and more frustrated about how long this is all taking and fights are starting to break out. Now this is where my friend had the why are we doing this moment. 
Because this is what he realized. We're waiting in line for hours and hours to see costumed impersonators of animated characters that aren't real. Why are we doing this? Why are we obsessed with the lives of other people while we neglect the responsibilities that God has given to us? Why are we devoted to reading every quote and every stat from our favorite sports star, but we're uninterested in the comments of the people that we spend most of our lives with? Why are we doing this? Yeah, this question is a gift that we as Christ followers can give to our culture obsessed with celebrities. When our friends are in the midst of gossiping about celebrity nonsense, we can simply say, why are you so interested in this? Not as a way to berate them, but as a way to express interest and to seek to understand and to actually draw the conversation down to the stuff of our deepest longings that we all have and we're all trying to meet in some way. Now, one quick aside to this point. You know, if you are a person who wants to be a conscience in our culture in this respect, then we can't be wrapped up in it ourselves. If celebrity worship is a part of your life, then we need to ask the same questions of ourselves. Why am I doing this? And then we need to repent of this before Jesus and deal with it with him. Because we have a responsibility to stand in the midst of our culture in order to really understand it and really grieve over the idolatry of it. Let it affect us and then seek to expose it by asking that question, what are we doing in order to see the deepest needs? Stand in celebrity culture. Action number two, speak to celebrity culture. You know, Paul's words to these people are really simple, but they're incredibly profound. They've grieved, they've confronted, they've shouted, they've asked this question, why are you doing this? And then Paul speaks up. Follow along. The rest of verse 15, and then all the way through 17. Paul says, we too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. You know, Paul makes several brief points in this mini-speech, and I cannot overestimate the importance of the first thing he says. In fact, this is the whole ball game for actually being able to undermine the influence of the trend of celebrification. Paul says, we too are only human like you. We too are only human like you. This is the equivalent of saying we put our pants on one leg at a time just like you do. Now, there's a Saturday Night Live skit that's become famous due to the need for more cowbell. You've seen this a million times. Now, this band is infatuated with a producer who might lend his credibility to their their sound. He might lend his credibility if they could lay down a good track. And so they're stoked that he's interested in them. In fact, they're borderline hysterical. And one of the band members, his name is Bobby, he says, I can't believe Bruce Dickinson digs our sound. And in an effort to calm them down, Bruce Dickinson, the, re the producer, responds, easy guys, I put on my pants just like the rest of you, one leg at a time. Except when my pants are on, I make gold records. <laughs> That's funny. 
That's really funny. A celebrity is no different than any other human being. Did you hear that? Celebrity is no different than any other human being. In fact, most of them are famous just because they're famous. They haven't done anything noteworthy. A celebrity is no different than any other human being. I want you to imagine for a moment that, that you got to meet one of your top favorite kind of people, celebrities. Get that person in your mind. You're going to spend a day with that person. You get to hang out with that person. Would it make you nervous to think that you'd have to figure out what you're going to say or you'd have to figure out what you're going to act, how you're going to act, how am I going to be around this person? How much difference does it make when you just think about the fact that this person is a human being just like you? In fact, this person is no different than the person that you're sitting next to in church right now or near in church right now. No different. Paul says we're only human like you. It's his first simple but very important remark, and it's a comment that we should keep on hand when we have the opportunity to speak into celebrity culture because it could helpfully shift things out of celebrity idolatry. Believe it or not, I've used this line myself on a couple of occasions. Speaking, uh, speaking in front of a lot of people and that being translated by video to other campuses. Sometimes I'll be at another campus or I'll be at a coffee shop or a restaurant and someone will walk up to me and say something like this, I kid you not. Wow, it's really you. A real celebrity in our midst. No, 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 no. You know, celebrity culture can even infiltrate its way into church culture. We can even contribute to it in some ways. Unless we're constantly saying, as I know only too well and the people who know me well say, I am only human just like you. you know, Paul makes this sobering statement about his own humanity. And then he says this. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, this is the heart of the exchange, the, th the point that matters the most. The people of Lystra have been fixated on worthless things, in this case, idolatry. But now they need to turn from all of that to the living God. You know, we don't get the full report of what Paul said to these people, but he calls this good news because it's the message about how Jesus is the God who actually did come in human form to redeem them from their idolatry and to call them to proper worship. Paul calls them to repent and to worship the one true living God. And then he goes on to describe him, and he says wonderful things about him. He says, the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Paul and Barnabas confront their culture with the creator, the one who made everything and sustains everything and provides for everything, the one who gives joy to creatures far and wide. And this emphasis on the creator accomplishes two things. It underscores the fact that Paul and Barnabas are clearly not gods because they could never be responsible for God's huge creative work. And it draws attention to the fact that as humans we become what we worship for better or for worse. In the case of the people of Lystra, they were bound to become like Zeus and Hermes. 
You know, their gods were obsessed with power and randomly punished people who didn't meet their every need. And as a result, their people would become power-hungry and self-serving and ultimately paralyzed by fear. What you worship, you become. But Paul and Barnabas wanted them to become like the living God, gracious, creative, kind, providing for them. And as a result, they could become like him. What you worship, you become. That's the message that our celebrity culture needs to hear. People can't do what God does. People aren't perfect, but God is. People aren't continually faithful, but God is. People don't endure forever, but God does. Celebrities fail, but God doesn't. We need to speak to our celebrity culture, witnessing to the true living God calling for a response to the good news about Jesus and serving up reminders that celebrities are just humans like me and you. Now, as I wrap things up, I want to invite our worship leaders to join me as we prepare for communion. And I'll close by saying this. The best strategy that we have for shaping our celebrified culture as Christians is to grieve over it to really allow idolatry to grieve us and then to question the impulses that tie all of us to it and then to engender the kinds of qualities that God himself has shown us. The way to counter what goes on in our culture at large is to live faithfully to what God has called us to do, to be content, to be grateful in the mundane things of everyday life. And if we live lives of great risk in following Jesus, facing hard situations and taking on difficult conversations and all sorts of challenging tasks, if we put other people first rather than being all about ourselves, then we'll live a life of real significance, deep, meaningful lives following after Jesus, which means that our lives will take the shape of the cross, 